Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, Episode 108, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. One city is allowing for parking fines to be paid with school supplies, and should Internet 101 be a required class? Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, what should teachers do when confronted with science denial? Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by teacher extraordinaire, Lissa Pruitt. Lissa, how are you doing? I'm great. Did you have a great uh, 4th of July? I did. We just kind of stayed in the neighborhood. What did you do? Um, we actually went camping. We, uh, I got a camper, and we went uh, down to Dolphin Island. Do you know where that is? That sounds familiar. No. Is it the coast of it's Biloxi? A, it's near um, like the border of Alabama and Florida. And it's like a little island south of Mobile. And um, oh, yes. we yeah. went and checked that out. It was fun. It was neat. I'd never been there before. And um, So you take the camper on the island? Yeah. Yeah. You drive it there. And yeah, you don't have to take a ferry. But there is a ferry that connects from Dolphin Island to um, Fort Morgan, which I think is technically in Florida. And you can actually like, pull your car and you can even pull a camper on the ferry and like ferry across the Mobile Bay to, over towards Florida. It's pretty cool. So tell me uh, what was going on in the uh, teacher's lounge this week. You hear anything? Yes, I think this is so cool. This is something that I think you could take to your local city councils and an idea. Las Vegas um, is doing a little promotional thing right now with city parking tickets between June 19th and July 19th. If you got a parking violation, instead of paying your ticket, you can bring in a receipt and school supplies that you purchased for the same amount of your parking ticket and donate it to the city council. And then they turn around and donate it to the teacher exchange, which is a nonprofit. That's so cool. It is cool. And, it, they did this, um, Las Vegas did, like adopted this program in 2016. They don't just use the teacher exchange. Like they kind of alternate through different charities. And so you don't have to do it. You can just pay your ticket if it's too much trouble to go buy the right, right. supplies. But, um, and, and it's only for parking tickets. It's not for safety violation tickets and things like that. It's only for not, you know, non-safety issues. Well, for for me, like if I get a parking ticket, I'm angry, right? Like I'm like, that was ridiculous. I was, you know, in that spot an hour longer than I was supposed to be. Give me a break, you know. Mm-hmm. But and I would be reluctant and maybe not excited about going to pay the ticket. But this would totally change my perspective. I'd be like, all right, yeah, I, I messed up, and I'm gonna do something good with that mistake. And it just everything changes for me in my mind. Yeah, and I just think it's cool that the city council kind of budgets in donations this way, you know, to where they're not going to receive that money. Um, This is a donation, so they're just kind of holding off and passing the donation on through, um, which is cool. Yeah. Now let's talk about it from a more cynical outlook. 
because <laughs> we've been all positive so far. But one, it's kind of a shame that they have to do this, right? And like we're, that we're here to where like a, a government body is basically donating to another government, government body because that other government body is not doing the job of supplying classrooms properly and teachers are having to reach into their own pocket and so forth. So that's kind of, you know, but I don't want to be negative about it, but it, it's a shame that we, we are here. Yeah, but they do other charities throughout the year too. So this is just, I, I think it's a great time to, to you know, tag it for teachers over the summertime with school supplies, but they do other charities throughout the year too. So I think, I just think it's positive um, because it is a donation um, in some way um, from them. They're not receiving funds through right. violations. So therefore, right. I mean, all I think all businesses of any sort, if they can either you know, supply resources or time or money towards different charities, then I, I think that's a win-win. All right. So let me get a little personal. You um, started a new classroom last year. So you obviously had to reach into your pocket big time, probably to, to get everything set up the way you like it. What type of hit are you expecting to take on year two? Well, not as bad um, as I had to. I had to sell t-shirts. I, I actually, before I ever even had my first day in the classroom, I designed a bunch of t-shirts for kind of school spirit shirts and sold them across the age ranges. So like even the school like, spirit shirts can be worn kind of as uniforms, you're saying. That's right. Yeah. yeah. They're allowed to, to wear them to school. And so I sold to the high school, the middle school, the elementary schools. You didn't have to go to my school to buy my spirit shirts. I made them to where they were, they could go across the district. And um, I think I sold, I mean, I, I know I raised around $900 for my classroom. So you, so you had a side gig to fund your classroom. That's right. I had to because it was in such, you know, just bare, bare supplies. I mean, there was no paint and um, no brushes and things like that. Just because the teacher before me just didn't prefer those type of art activities that involved paint and brushes. Art mediums, is that what y'all call it? Yes. Yeah. And so, um, but I definitely wanted to bring that back into the classroom, so... Um, that's really expensive. And then, of course, you know, I think I've mentioned on here before that I teach almost 700 children mm -hmm. a week. And so, I mean, that means every week we go through 700 pieces of paper and, you know, 700 children are using the supplies. So they, you know, it's a very consumable classroom. So last year was pretty heavy hit with outside money of mine trying to just get the program to where it could be to where I could be the dynamic art teacher that I am because um, it's really hard to make it exciting when you just have crayons and paper right um, but this year I feel like I've kind of planned well after seeing what we could do last year and kind of got some things in shape and in, in space like I've taken donations from the PTO and um and, you know, was able to use the state money that's given for supplies. I, I did not have access to that the year before because that teacher before spent that money for the following year. So uh, okay, I was sure. able now this this last year that I was there to spend the money to help me for this coming year. Yeah, it's it's a uh, it's kind of a tough place we're in when it comes to supplies, and I think everyone's on the same page, and everybody wants to help. and And I really like the idea of what Las Vegas did here. That that was kudos to them, and maybe we'll see some other cities uh, hop on board with that. Um, I read a really interesting article in um, Bloomberg. It was actually an opinion piece, but it basically was making an argument 
and I guess I've never thought of this, but that the internet, like internet 101 should be a required class. And I think it's a compelling argument when you really start going into the details of what would be taught in that class. And and I think it's funny too, because we've done a hundred, this is episode 108. We've done over a hundred interviews on this show. And one of our questions is, what are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? And I don't know that anyone's ever said internet 101. So what do you learn in internet okay. 101? Good, good. Thank you for asking. Um, <laughs> I think, uh, or no, actually this person thinks um, that it should first teach you how to properly like source stuff, like know where you're getting your information. And we have talked about that on this show in the past, like, you know, in terms of the fake news and, and understanding what a good source is. So that's step one. Um, two, like have good conversations about um, what mediums or what sites are almost built to polarize and really give students uh, an understanding of um, how things are divisive on purpose to create interaction and, and how to recognize that. Are you with me so far? Yeah. Um, then to use like certain tools, like you could have a, a lesson on, and I'm, I'm a horrible teacher. I'm not like good at building lesson plans, but you could have a lesson on um, just like how to use search type engines properly. And there's more than just Google, right? Like there's Twitter search, for example, which rarely people I don't think use Twitter search. And like if like, for example, um, recently, the US women's were playing in the World Cup and the star player got set out. And I wanted to find out like, okay, why did she get set out? And I wanted to find out like now and there wasn't really even news stories out yet. But people were starting to talk about it on Twitter. So you hop on Twitter, you type in her name, Rapineau, and then you see like, okay, Maybe she had a strain, like people are talking about this and it's Mm -hmm. just a really powerful tool. So how to use different types of search tools. And then, of course, you can go into, um, you know, how to watch out for things like phishing and hacking and so forth. I mean, there, there are lessons to be learned in the Internet. And I don't know that we are teaching our kids. I mean, I guess I have conversations with my kids about it, but it's it's in passing. What are your thoughts? Well, yeah, and you're kind of, you know, low key techie. So it probably is easier for you to have those conversations than it would be. For someone like me that has no idea. So I would really be appreciative of a classroom setting that's doling out that information. What is this for high school age? Um, I think you could start school? in I think you could start in middle school. I mean, as soon as the device is in the child's hand, I think yeah. well in a lot that, of schools that's an elementary school. Yeah. Um, right. And so I mean, maybe there are little things. I mean, even if it's not a full class, I just do feel like it should be a, a lesson. Like we should be teaching about the internet. Mm-hmm. even if that's taking place in schools. And like you said, not not all parents are techies. And um, they're not going to... I mean, I had such a good phishing ploy yes, like two days ago. It was basically an email looked like it was from Apple. And it was like, you, somebody from Russia tried to log into your Apple account. We've, um, you know, locked down your account. Please go here to reset your password. And it all looked... It was like, I forgot.apple.com or something like that. And I recognized that it was phishing, but I was like, man, like... Uh, this could get somebody. Oh, uh, definitely. I'm sitting here thinking, wait, did I do that? Did I get right. that? <laughs> like, um, and, and how do you know? How do you know that it's... You just know that like Apple, like big companies like that typically don't contact you that way. And and I guess what it was for me was they, they told me like, oh yeah, by the way, you can go here to fix this, right? You should never click on the link in the email because it's going to direct you to somewhere where they're going to... So you're going to click on that link. It's going to look legit. And then you're going to type in your username and password to reset your password. Mm. And you basically just gave your username and password to somebody else in another country. 
and and that's where they get you. So if if you ever get an email like the, like saying you know your your account's been hacked and go here, exit the email and actually go to the site. Like hop on your your Safari or or your Chrome and type in apple.com and then go directly through Apple. Don't go through the link in the email. And that's kind of a good way to protect yourself there. Hmm. Um, so well, yeah, are, are you on board? Did I saw you? Yeah, I mean, I do. And I think, you know, I would hope that a part of the, um, the, you know, c- course would have to do with, you know, kindness on the internet right. and the social aspects of the internet and things like that. It, I, you and know, I that is hope. mentioned in this article. So okay, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I agree with that as well. And, and just, yeah, knowing, and then of course I didn't even talk about like putting yourself out there too much, which I do think. Do you find that like your your teen, your younger um, child is more private than most? Yes. Yeah, and but do you think like their their age group is more private, or they no? St- no? Okay, I thought maybe <laughs> I thought maybe it was a generational thing, like they're learning. No, I think it really depends. We talk about this all the time among my group of friends. Um, it's really just depends on your child. Um, like you, you know. I do think I'm more of a a low key person that kind of is a little more private and partly because, you know, we can't go into a restaurant or anything without people coming up that, that I've taught their children or in some way, or I know them from some, you know, so there, it's hard to kind of get away and be completely just where you're just unplugged. You know what I mean? And so I don't put as much out there, you know, about myself and whatever. And I guess maybe, They've picked up on that a little bit, but um, but there are friends of mine whose kids are super, super just, you know, they just, they they love that attention or they love the dialogue that ping pongs back and forth, the funny jokes, the funny emojis. And so they, they're putting stuff out constantly throughout the day, adding to, I can't remember what it's called, but the little not the feed, but the thing that you can add to all day long that flashes on your story, I guess your story. Yes. And so, you know, I think it just depends on the personality and, you know, there, there are a few children that come to mind that, that I think if they had not been given the opportunity to be on social media, maybe in, you know, fifth, sixth, seventh grade, they could have maybe saved themselves a little bit of heartache because it just weren't mature enough and they weren't doing anything bad, but they were just so goofy and, uh, I mean, obnoxious kind of to where it gave people an idea about them that's not really who they are. They just didn't know how to handle They They almost treated social media like a game, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, so whereas someone's playing like Candy Crush like crazy, well, they were getting on social media like crazy. And, and any little hit or like they got back meant something to them more than it did to others, maybe. And so they kind of made this this little personality that's not even connected to the real child's personality. And we we were just talking about this the other day about how it's just crazy because it kind of depends on the child. Some of them are going to take it and run with it, and and you you know you want to pull them back and say, wait, none of this even is real. Like right. this doesn't even matter. Like, and then you know, and even you can say that when you see them liking other people's pictures, they're like flying through the feed, just barely tapping as they go. They're not even reading. They're not even, they're just doing it just to get it done. I'm not going to use names, but one of my son's friends is like first like on everything. 
Oh, that's funny. <laughs> that, it's funny that, that you be... even noticed that. You're just, you're so <laughs> it, weird, because it's because it's like repetitive over <laughs> oh and over again. Like I'll be like, wow, even, every time. Like, how do you even know that where guy, to find that? That, I don't even know how you know. Well, it's just like you just realize, like, okay, that was wow. I already got a like. Oh, it's that person again. That which is, is cool. I mean, I guess they're a fan. I don't know. Well, and see, so you're probably somewhere in the middle. Like, I don't even know how many likes I get on something. Well, I admire I you though. I, I know. That, well, yeah. that's nice. But so you're probably in the middle. Like you notice, oh wow, got a like. Who was that? You know, yeah. where I don't even notice. I have no idea. Yeah. I have no idea. I couldn't well, tell you. I'm gonna. But then there's some people that take it way too far, and if they got 35 likes they somehow internalize that and feel like they feel shunned or outcast in some way um and they start to worry like oh are, right. are, are yeah. people mad at me or was that not funny and, that's or, unhealthy. and yeah. then they try to go and make it more you know more fun and that should be in the class like it should be the health, absolutely the, the yes. mental health and even if it even if you aren't necessarily like trying to like you should be aware that that's a thing like socially and you should be aware of the the chemical get, that gets set off in your brain when somebody likes a photo, like what's happening and why why people are motivated to put selfies of themselves and see those likes come in because they're getting little, I think it's bits of, um, is it dopamine or, yeah. or something? You know, or Yeah, something. some sort of endorphins or something. <laughs> something. Yeah, something's happening there. And, and that should be taught in the class. Um, I will predict that somewhere in the next, I'm going to say eight to 12 years, we are going to have a presidential candidate who is going to have embarrassing like teenage pictures or oh, something, gosh. something they did on social media earlier on in life. And it's going to come to the surface. And then as a country, we're going to have to decide like, do they get a pass? And I think the answer is yes. I don't know. Well, well I don't know. It we'll depends see. on how awful it is. Right. But I guess so. If it's something silly. Yeah, probably. Right. But, but it will happen. Are you ready for the uh, bright idea? Yes. Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is a science education researcher at Illinois State University. Dr. Rebecca Darner was recently published in Education Researcher, where she was offering some tips on what teachers should do when confronted with science denial. Becky, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, The idea that people would brush off science kind of feels like something that's developed over the past 10, maybe 20 years. Am I wrong to feel like this is something that's kind of relatively new? Um, well, I think it's probably always been around. I mean, I think, you know, decades ago, there were there were flat earthers, for example. Um, there were people for a long time who have denied evolution since the, the theory of natural selection has come into existence. There have been people who have denied um that aspect of science. But I think what we're seeing in the recent decade or two, maybe, is that these things that were used to exist kind of on the periphery of, of society have now really started to migrate toward the center. And so it's much more common. And um, we encounter it more in our classrooms. Some of the popular topics that, that you list in referring to people who are maybe struggling with accepting the science are things like evolution, climate change, vaccinations, GMOs. What is it about those particular topics? I think those topics kind of bring together like this uh, perfect storm of factors. Um, first of all, there, there are parts of science that are not often misunderstood, and there are many misconceptions about what the science is. And then on top of that, um, those things tend to, to 
be threatening. I mean, um, they threaten, for example, our safety, our health. Um, in some cases, they threaten our faith. And so um, because they are really um, topics that become personal very quickly um, by threatening some aspect of our identity, I think that they're, they're, they're more prone to, to, for them to be controversial, at least among non-scientists. And so our goal on this show is to kind of help teachers out, right, and, and arm them mm-hmm. with some tools that maybe um, they can bring back to their classroom. And um, and even me personally, I mean, I, I used to do weather uh, for, on television, and I was always reluctant to talk about, say, something like climate change. I'm in the Deep South. Um, you have a lot of people who struggle to, to believe that that's an actual thing, despite what the science may say. So, so help arm teachers. Like, what if we were going to have a discussion about climate change in the classroom, I mean, how do you broach that? You know, at the very basic level, um, we have to realize that I think science denial is really an issue of identity. People um, exhibit science denial when they feel like their identity is being threatened by evidence. And so I think at the very foundational level, it's really important for teachers to know who their students are, to know what their identities are. and. and from there, you can really kind of gauge to see, is this really an issue of science denial, which by definition is when, you know, someone refuses to engage in the, the evaluation of the evidence because they the, there's potential for the conclusion of that evidence to um, be undesirable for some reason. Um, that's different than just seem, simply being ignorant of what the evidence says. And so... I encounter this actually quite a lot with my students where, um, and keep in mind my students are college freshmen typically, but um, they're non-science majors, so they're, they're not going into a science field. And um, they're, they've believed the hype about, for example, um, GMOs causing mutations if you eat them. Okay, that's the uh, common misconception out there. Um, but then when we actually look at the evidence, they're like, oh, you know, it's, it's more of an issue of ignorance, not science denial. And so I think teachers, first of all, can really, you know, they know their students very well and they can really see, is this an issue where they're refusing to actually look at the, the evidence because they don't like the conclusion or are they just not aware of the evidence? And those are two different situations. I mean, just being not aware means that you you know, help the student become aware. You help them engage in the evaluation of that evidence and really try to understand what it means. Um, But on the other hand, if it it truly is science denial where there's, you know, I'm not engaging in this activity because I don't like its conclusion, um, I think, you know, it's important to present evidence in a way that is not um, threatening to different identities, which seems obvious, right? Like, for example, one might ask, well, how would I ever do that? But I think as science teachers, you know, we we identify as scientists. And when someone um, picks out a piece of evidence and says, well, I'm not even going to consider that, put that under consideration because, 
for whatever reason, that to us feels threatening as well. And we, we tend to get mad. I mean, when I talk to, to fellow uh, science teachers, we get really frustrated and kind of angry when someone says, well, I'm not even going to pay attention to that evidence because I don't like it. Um, so I think it's important for us to realize that even our discomfort and anger that might be elicited by someone's science denial, that um, can can cause that science denial to become more entrenched in our students. And so in some way, we kind of have to keep that in check and understand that, you know, this isn't, they're not trying to misbehave or make me mad. They're, this is an issue of their identity. And, you know, in adolescent years and high school years, identity development is really, um, you know, it's ramped up. It's, it's going strong. And so part of, you know, being a teacher is to, to really help kids uh, figure out who they are and what it is they value. So the last, this is kind of a convoluted answer to your question, but I think um, the, my final, I guess, tip is to really um, try to foster a classroom culture that values accuracy in many ways. And so that means accuracy in, you know, if we're trying to interpret a graph together, let's figure out what the the accurate conclusion is from this graph. Um, this is tricky because at the same time we want to foster a classroom culture that also values making mistakes and learning from those mistakes and seeing mistakes as learning opportunities. Um, and so kind of juggling those two values within your classroom, I think is super important valuing mistakes and it's okay to misinterpret a graph. Um, but also it's okay because it allows us to really fully understand that graph um, and come to an accurate conclusion about what it's telling us. I really like how you kind of offer suggestions on how to almost, I don't know if disarm is the right word, but mm -hmm. um, with the students. And, and, and you don't just necessarily, when they, when they give their perspective or their understanding of something, you don't say, mm -hmm. well, no, that's wrong. It's more of you offer these key phrases like, I see why you would conclude that. Or you said, mm -hmm. um, I know you're not alone in thinking that, which is one I really like, just living in the political climate that we're in. Yeah, there's, mm -hmm. there's people who have a different opinion. Like, so, so why should a teacher be careful w with the way they push back? Well, I mean, I think that, again, we don't want to um, threaten them. I think that if, for example, we have a, a student in our classroom who doesn't believe climate, um, climate science and that climate change is caused by humans, um, <clears throat> they didn't come up with that idea on their own. People who they are very close with, who they love very much, have um, taught that idea to them. And so, you know, if we're really, and most likely the people who taught that idea to them are very passionate about that idea. So if we go and attack it, to them, it feels like an attack to that person who they're going to defend. So I think um, an additional reason is we really want them to um, understand that, you know, the those when they make an error like that in really evaluating evidence, um, that's still a valuable contribution to us figuring out what this evidence is trying to tell us. And um, that's what I mean by seeing mistakes as learning opportunities rather than um, seeing them as opportunity to, because we want to engage that child in, 
evaluating the evidence. We want them to continue to engage in trying to figure out what this graph is telling us or what this data table is telling us. Um, and if we shut them down right there, then, you know, they're probably not going to continue to engage in really trying to figure out what the data is telling us. This may may not fit for, for your world since you are in, in the university level, but but maybe you do have some perspective on this. And and that is, what what do you do when you have to worry about parents pushing back or mm-hmm. or even an administration saying, hey, you know, yeah, there's science to back that up, but that's a pretty controversial topic. So why don't we just glaze over that one? I mean, do you, does that really ever happen at the university level? And do you have any suggestions um, to respond? I mean, I have gotten emails from, at the university level from parents. I have gotten, um, interestingly, my students have emailed my chair before about when we cover certain controversial topics. Um, I think that I do have a lot more freedom in, in what I cover and how I cover it. But I think that, um, you know, at the end of the day, um, these controversial topics, it's really not about the topics themselves. It's really about um, helping students um, engage with evidence and evaluate evidence and come to a conclusion, like create an argument based on that evidence. Like if we're going to cite the next generation science standards, you know, it's that practice of engaging in evaluation of evidence and making a claim based off of that evidence. Um, That practice, that activity um, is going to serve everyone in the long term. The topics that are subject to science denial now in 10 years, in 20 years, they're probably going to be different topics. But that practice of being able to look at the evidence and tell a story with the evidence, that is always going to be relevant. And so I guess um, what I'm getting at is that, uh, you know, we want to engage in that practice with topics that are meaningful to students. And the topics that are meaningful to students are the ones that are somewhat controversial among non-scientists. That's, I mean, it's engaging with those topics is what makes it engaging to students. If we talk about things that they already kind of know the answer to, or they don't have a stake in, you know, in what the conclusion of this graph means, then how boring is that? <laughs> right, right. Can you tell us, like, what's your your win per- percentage like? I mean, have you been successful in in convincing students who have come in as skeptics? I have. You know, it's hard for me to tell because, unfortunately, my class sizes are quite large. Like, I have literally hundreds of students in a class, and so it's hard for me to really get to know each individual student. Um, but I do know that when I get to get a chance to have those one-on-one conversations with students that, um, you know, simply, usually the one-on-one conversations are about the topic of evolution and the, the student has a religious objection to the teaching of the theory of evolution. So the moment I acknowledge that this is a struggle for them, that this is, you know, they're trying to overcome this conflict where, you know, across the rest of the course, they're really engaged and they feel they're excited about the the scientific knowledge. 
Um, but in this topic, they're, you know, they're, there's, they've found this internal conflict. Um, I acknowledge the conflict and that it's difficult. I, um, I talk about how, um, the theory or sorry, the, I talk about how science and religion are essentially two ways of knowing and they can go together, but that it's not my job to tell them how they go together. That's a personal journey. Um, and you, you basically show empathy and acknowledge that it's difficult for them. And at the same time, highlight the difference between religion and science. And, you know, in all of my um, interactions that have gone this way, um, the student then is very willing to learn the theory of evolution. Now, I don't know how that affects their own belief system. And I kind of feel like in that case, that's not really my business. Um, But I do know that um, you know, not being threatening to their identity is a huge step in the right direction. Now, I will say that, you know, in my class, we have had some really heated discussions about um, climate change. And um, even though I have a class of 250 students or so, um, it's a very interactive class. It's discussion-based. They do group problem-solving. And um, we basically analyze case studies together. And that, um, those conversations, there has, have definitely been students who I would classify, if I'm going to label someone, um, as they, they were coming in as science denying. What's difficult about the group problem solving, especially in a huge class of 200 students or so, is that my um, delivery of the evidence is under my control, but my students' claims about the evidence and different perspectives on the evidence are not under my control. And so, um, you know, I I have I constantly remind my students that um, we're we're criticizing arguments and evidence. We're not criticizing people, and so so that they're not really focusing their um, disagreeing comments on the person across the room who disagrees with them. So what would you tell the, the colleague or the educator out there who is reluctant to, to broach topics like this, even though they know what the science says? Um, I would encourage them to be courageous. I mean, I think that, um, so many kids, the kids who end up in my science classroom, because I teach non-majors biology, um, these are people who have decided to major in something else besides a science, and they are angry they have to be there because they don't want to ever take a science class again um, because it was so unengaging. And, you know, that breaks my heart, to be honest. I think that um, when science class becomes something that is relevant to students' lives and that is... Um, a way for them to approach problem solving and decision making um, rather than just memorization of a bunch of facts and regurgitation on multiple choice exams, which is how a lot of science is taught. Um, then it, you know, it becomes fun and engaging that this is how we uh, recruit new scientists into the disciplines and um, if we're afraid to talk about the stuff that's actually relevant to our lives, then we're essentially teaching students that science is not relevant to their lives. And I think 
that's really unfortunate because that's how we end up with people who don't make science-informed decisions. I think it's important, too, to, to note that you point out that you also think it's it's important to, that we are still critical or at least think critically and not just buy into science 100%. Am I yeah. understanding that right? Like you, you kind of you have to understand that there may be more information out there that we don't know, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, I define science denial as um, the unwillingness to engage in evidence evaluation when the conclusion might be undesirable. But science acceptance is definitely not just, you know, wholehearted acceptance of whatever the scientist says. It is instead engagement in evidence evaluation, even when the potential for the conclusion to be undesirable is there. So, you know, science acceptance really has to do with, okay, I'm going to, even though I may not like the conclusion of the what this graph or what these data are telling me, I'm, I'm still going to see what it says and be open to a different conclusion than what I'm thinking. So um, it's really about being open to what the data tells us, not about just blindly following whatever scientists tell us. Well, uh, Dr. Rebecca Darner, we appreciate you taking the time to actually, you know, write this article, get it out there, because because it is really such an important topic. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, sure. And um, if somebody wants to keep up with you, is there a way to follow you? Do you like do you like to hang out on Twitter and interact with people? You know, I am kind of a social media hermit, but uh, I check my email many times a day, and so I'm happy to receive emails from anyone who wants to talk about this or other issues related to science ed. Great. I, I will share your email in our show notes if somebody's interested in reaching out. Um, okay. Are you ready for our pop quiz? Sure. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Whew. Um, oh, I thought I was ready for this. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think... I know this is kind of a lame answer, but I think it's math because there's so much beauty in math and logic is there too. And it's just, I just really love math. And um, as a scientist growing up, I, you know, was very math phobic. But now looking back, I think I received poor math instruction and I wish I would have really paid more attention to how awesome math is. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? Um, we're trying to teach this, but I think we could do a better job as teamwork and collaboration. What does every child deserve? Um, the opportunities to fulfill their potential. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Um, so many demands on their time and energy. What's the best gift to give an educator? Time. <laughs> <laughs> um, which teacher changed your life? I think it was Dr. Jamin Eisenbach at Eastern Michigan University. I, I did, he was a professor. I got all the way to my master's degree before I really realized what science was, and it was due to him. And so, like, what did he do differently? Like, if there's a science teacher out there, I'm sure we, we need um, to know. Yeah. So I think, um, well, interestingly, he 
uh, was my entomology professor, but he was also my first teaching supervisor. So as a graduate student, I was teaching um, undergraduate, like freshman biology labs, and he was supervising me in doing so. And, um, you know, anytime you teach it, some, you know, teach content for the first time, you, you totally kind of restructure how you understand that content. And so um, I think just that experience helped me. But he also just helped me question my practice and question why it was that I was so afraid to ask questions that I didn't know the answer to. And, um, and so, yeah, it just made me, the whole experience really made me rethink science as you know, science is really about maintaining the curiosity we all had as children, but then answering those questions in systematic ways. And so, you know, I part of it was how he wrote the lab manual that I was teaching, but all, also part of it was just his coaching of my teaching that really made me think about um, what science was and who was I as a scientist. And last question, pen or pencil? Oh, pencil. Definitely. That sounds like a scientist, right? Is <laughs> yes. That, is that across the board probably? Yeah, I'm not really sure. But, you know, mistakes are learning opportunities, like I said earlier. So um, definitely pencil. <laughs> Dr. Rebecca Darner with Illinois State University. We appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. All right. Thank you very much. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. We want to hear from you, so if you want to send us an idea or a comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So if you like what you heard today, please be sure and hit that subscribe button, and we'd also love it if you'd leave us a five-star review. Don't forget you can connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash classdismissedpodcast or on Twitter to search for us by typing in Class Dismiss. On behalf of Russ with School Status and Lissa representing all the teachers out there, I'm Nick Ortega and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.